Hey, this is Rob. This is episode 130 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. All right. It's been a minute since I've done an episode. Uh, I, I've said it before. It's like, I'd love to be like, I'm just so busy. I don't have time. And quite frankly, it's summer. I've just taken the weekends for myself finally for probably the first time since starting Folly. And Alex reached out, said, hey, we've been doing a lot. Oh, so, so I should say, I'm sitting here with Alex French, co-founder and CEO of Busy Coffee. You've probably seen them if you've been to any grocery store and looked at the cold brew section. Busy Coffee, best-selling product at this point, RTD cold brew, but also doing whole bean, doing steep and brew cold brew bags, number one selling cold brew on Amazon, uh, just secured $7.1 million in funding in February of this year. And that's kind of the last time we saw each other and spoke at length. But he reached out and said, we should probably do a podcast episode. We've got a lot of stuff I, I think would be fun to talk about. And the last one we did was in August of 2020. So to say a few things might have changed since then, I think might be an understatement. Yeah, a lot has changed for better, for worse, right? It's uh, the entrepreneurial roller coaster. Now, Amazon, you're the number one selling cold brew on Amazon and also a retail brand. So COVID for a lot of people in coffee was like our shops closed. Our For us, cafes and restaurants are closed. It affected the business. Now for busy, it might have had a much different effect. So I'd love to just hear since August of 2020, what was it like during those, I was going to say COVID months, but really like the 18 months, the year and a half, two years following when things got closed down, what was it like in the business? Speaking from the point of Amazon, your retailers, the growth you've experienced in those channels. Yeah. So I guess we kind of had three sections going into COVID. So we actually were private labeling for coffee shops, Dunn Brothers. We used to make their cold brew infinite black as a coffee concentrate. And as you said, everything got shut down. So we were forced to focus because uh, we were just trying to keep our employees working. We weren't even making any money. Literally, we were losing money, but we were able to keep our employees working every day. COVID hit. Everyone's consuming at home. You know, we had our Amazon business, which was already in existence. And then it tripled overnight. I mean, literally from one week to the next, tripled in revenue, which right out of the gates was incredible, right? You're like, this is so amazing. But then everyone, because everyone that's in consumer products was, you know, retail became tougher. If you weren't a low priced item or you weren't the biggest brand, everyone shifted to Amazon. So you had all these consumer product brands that had raised bajillions of dollars and their investors are saying, go on Amazon immediately. And it created actually a huge challenge for us after we'll say, because a lot of companies weren't on Amazon, they may have just been on their website or just been in retail. Their investors say, hey, Amazon's cranking, get on there. So there's a several month process, as you're aware of, of getting set up on Amazon. And then all of a sudden, the competition was insane. I mean, we we had been kind of, I don't want to say resting on our laurels for the last couple of years, but no one was focusing on Amazon at all, especially in the segment for us, which was cold brew grounds for people to make it at home. All of a sudden, the cost per clicks went up 50%. So we were getting a click for, let's say, a dollar. It went to $1.50, $2, and some keywords, 3 bucks. when before, again, it was a dollar. And not only that, then Amazon raised all their fees. Yeah, so for anyone listening, cost per click. So 
I've learned the hard way a lot about Amazon over the past couple of years. So at the same timeline of when you're talking about, so we were on Amazon, we're having a really successful launch, you know, number one new roasted coffee Mm -hmm. on Amazon. The, you had that natural uh, exponential organic growth. And then somebody on their team was like, Oh, the name of the building you roast in doesn't match the business name because we don't own the building. And they said, you're now shut down. And it took us over a year to get back on because 5,000 new businesses a day are signing up for Amazon because it's the middle of 2020. So for anybody listening, the way Amazon works is like a traditional website, you might say, hey, I want to have that banner ad. They go, okay, that's $50 for the week or you know, $100 for the month, What depending on the website. That's how much it costs to be on this banner. The way Amazon works, that's pretty genius on both sides, is... You don't pay unless someone clicks on your advertisement. So you can specifically focus on certain key words. So if you're talking cold brew, you could be cold brew coffee grounds is a key phrase. Now that's a really important one. So if a bunch of big companies come in and go, hey, cold brew coffee grounds are a big item on Amazon. We've never been on Amazon. Let's throw all of our money into advertising for that phrase. So when you're busy coffee and you're the number one cold brew on Amazon and you've been doing it a specific way and getting the return on ad spend or return per click, that's what's happening here. Because I learned that the hard way. I, I assumed it was kind of just like advertising. Oh, you know, like Google, it it's, operates in a similar way, cost per click. I go, maybe it's similar to that or that ad just shows up when they search for this word. So I've never thought about it that way that... Being in the number one cold brew position actually puts a big target on your back. Yeah, I mean, people were advertising all over our profile where, you know, of course, now they're saying like, well, you got to go bid against these other brands on your own profile. And it's like, well, they're searching for my word. This is insane. And the way that they operate is it's a bid auction. So whoever bids the highest for the keyword gets the placement. And so when we were, it was just a few of us. It was, you know, it was a dollar, right? And then all of a sudden you had these huge overfunded companies having no choice but to continue to grow. They're throwing three, five, they'll put whatever they want on there because they just got to drive top line revenue to keep raising money. And so it became extremely inefficient from a marketing spend. So it was totally wild. And we essentially said, okay, we're not going to play the games that they're playing. Amazon completely retooled their algorithm where we used to be able to this is getting kind of nuanced details about the category but we used to just bid on cold brew and cold brew was like one of you know it's the highest search term in the category behind cold brew coffee maker and what happened is amazon changed the algorithm because people stopped going into stores and people were looking for liquid products and they sell amazon fresh and they sell whole foods So they changed all of the algorithm to be, if you are the word cold brew, we used to rank number one for seriously three years on the highest volume keyword because we have the highest conversion rate. But Amazon said, we want to capture some of this liquid volume of the refrigerated products that our stores sell so we can compete with Instacart. And so now when you search for that keyword, it's only liquid products. Even though we have the highest conversion rate, we're not even on the first page anymore. So Amazon, when they buy Whole Foods, this is all pre-pandemic, but you go, they now own Whole Foods. What is more beneficial to Amazon as a business? Getting uh, the fees that they get per busy coffee, coffee ground sold or steep and brew bags, they get a fee for everyone sold, or would they rather drive people into the company that they own through things like Instacart, that grocery delivery becomes a major thing during the pandemic. So they're going, well, we want more money coming to Amazon and Amazon businesses. So now we have the ability to sell liquid product because 
like we were just talking in the hallway, like liquid product requires in most cases cold uh, cold chain delivery. Yep. So what cold chain delivery is, that just means it's refrigerated at all times. You can't send it through the mail in a box at risk of bacteria growth and just needs to be uh, like non-pasteurized fresh products have to be cold chain delivered. And Amazon literally just like, well, we now own a cold chain system, literally a grocery store is almost being a storage warehouse for all their liquid product. And then it doesn't need to be refrigerated for the short delivery period of like an Instacart or any of those grocery delivery services. And so here we are, we had this great business for the first six months, it was cranking. We were doing amazing. And then all the competition flooded in and it basically became from wildly profitable to essentially break even. And so we had that business. It was ground coffee, essentially, co-packed. And, but we own a brewery. And that had always been like our, our pie in the sky. Let's try and grow this thing big. We always thought that people were going to just get too lazy, frankly. They're too busy is probably a better way to put it, right? And they just wanted to have a ready-to-drink product. So we basically put all of our eggs into the next basket because we were, we were unwilling to lose money at that time because we had been losing money for like five years. We finally stopped losing money. I'm like, okay, we, we need to maintain this profitability. Otherwise, we're going to have to go back out and raise money again, which we, of course, did, unfortunately. And so we then shifted all of our gears into the ready-to-drink. Think of it like a, a jug of milk. It's a 48-ounce bottle that has uh, four or six servings, depending on the serving size. And it's like five, six bucks. So we then shifted our gears into that product line. And just with COVID, similar with Amazon tripled, the sales at grocery stores tripled because all the coffee shops are closed. Fun fact, packaged coffee is a $15 billion category food service. So think like a Starbucks coffee shop is $45 billion. So literally like three times the volume was shut down, shifted into grocery stores, which was exciting, but at the same time crazy. And so we right at the time got kicked out of Target for a a separate reason, which was frustrating. But because we're a manufacturer, we had been reaching out to all these uh, retailers, grocers across the country for, you know, we were four years in at this point. And they've always said no, but we've always been like, we make the liquid ourselves. And so once summer hit and sales tripled as well as online, but also in store, the competitors like Starbucks and the mainstream brand Stoke they literally went out of stock at every store in the country. Mm. So if you, let's say August, September of 2021, you would walk into a grocery store and there would literally be nothing on shelf. The whole shelf was completely empty. And these grocers remembered that we had product and we made this. This is how crazy the industry is though. We had emailed them. We had submitted formal business proposals to the buyers. And instead of the buyer like responding to the email, they went to our contact us form and said, hey, are you still making this stuff? Would you be able to get our product on shelf in six weeks? And so that's kind of what happened for the, for the next like 12 months is we were just literally trying to keep up with the orders, which sounds amazing. And in theory it is, but what that means is let's remember that everyone, no one was working. People were constantly switching jobs. Everyone was asking for raises. There was no truck drivers. Um, inflation was through the roof. Gas is through the roof. So there was a probably a 12, 12 month window where I worked seven days a week and we would work our day job, you know, sitting at the desk doing computer work, spreadsheets, POs, that sort of stuff. And then we had to work the production line the second half of the day and every day on the weekend. So we were working seven days a week, two shifts at the plant. 
And, you know, we didn't have the right equipment. We didn't have any processes because it was just like, get the orders out through brute force. Um, so it was totally insane. And we got to the point where like ran out of space at the facility. And so we're, and we couldn't move into, uh, our, we had neighbors. So we had this tiny little one bay door and we were honestly completely panicked because we were still growing really fast, but we were still losing money and we essentially needed to move into a new space in order to, um, capture more orders and increase our margins because we were losing money. So this was even before the coffee price, which I'm sure we'll get into. We were losing money at the time. And in order to continue to get orders and drive more scale to get lower costs, we had to expand the plant, which was taking on an additional risk. So we spent, gosh, it was probably nine months looking for a, like a roughly 50,000 square foot brewery to build out. We had, I mean, literally this beautiful brewery that we had CAD model that was going to be this fully automated grounds loading, grounds extraction, auto packing, this whole beautiful thing. And then we ended up um, raising that money to do it. And, but the crazy thing is this landlord that we were talking to, and this is foreign to me. I didn't know anything about commercial real estate. You know, I can sell a product and we're getting to the one inch line. And this guy kind of baits and switch us at the end of the deal after we've been negotiating for like six months. And so we all of a sudden had this 10 year lease that we had a personal guarantee, the whole lease on, even if like we were to sell the company, we were still liable for the lease, which never happens. All these crazy fees, we closed on the money to build out this crazy brewery. And then all of a sudden our neighbor next door terminated their lease and we were able to expand right next door. <laughs> so, so it was like the craziest, most stressful you know, nine months. And the, the crazy thing is we told all of our employees that we're like, yeah, we're going to build this world-class brewery, which was the plan. And then all of a sudden our landlord bait and switched us on the one inch line and we now got to move next door. And so it's kind of this weird thing where we raised all this debt and like, we're not going to spend it. And like, we don't even know what to do like with this portion. We played up, we had to pay all these closing costs again, all stuff. I'm not a homeowner. So this is all foreign to me. Um, and now we're just like sitting on like, what do we do with all this stuff? Uh, so it was just a totally wild ride of how Amazon got super competitive. We got into the retail segment, which worked really well. Um, but then now inflation's hit. And so we went from this hyper growth business where we were really crushing it to now costs are through the roof. Sales in the category are mostly flat. And our competitors haven't passed on pricing until like a month ago which was insane because coffee's up, you know, double on the C market. Yeah. Um, so yeah, totally wild ride the last like six months. So when this space opens up next door, do you still move forward on that, like the new brewery or is it kind of the existing brewery and now you just have added space? Yeah. So that has to be tough even from an employee standpoint when you, because when you talk about cold brewing coffee, it's like a pretty arduous process, especially after the coffee is brewed, the grounds are filtered out and you've got all these grounds that you have to dispose of. Mm -hmm. And if my understanding is correct, it's kind of that old school, like same as in a beer brewery that when yep. you've got the leftover barley that you are scooping that stuff out with a shovel. And so it's gotta be also challenging from a business perspective. You're like, this is a huge win yep. and we don't have to move. We've got this expanded space. Our problems are solved. We don't have to go into this lease with this bait and switch model that at the last second you were already starting to get worried about these new terms that have been thrown in. But then you also have to go back to your employees and be like, Hey, this new system we've been showing you that mm -hmm. we're just about to finish. Like that's also not happening. So this heavy labor work is going to continue the way it has been. Cause quite frankly, it doesn't make financial sense not to. 
right? And we and the thing is, these pieces of equipment we were going to buy were very large, and it's like full scale. It's basically beer equipment. It's called the Lauder Ton, and it basically you're hit it nail on the head. Is we're scooping about thirty thousand pounds of coffee a day out of these tanks manually with shovels and like hose, and the team was thrilled to be able to say like wait, I just get to push a button <laughs> and that's all done for me. And now we don't have this, even though we expanded our space, we don't have the ceiling clearance to be able to put in these larger pieces of equipment that automate that process. So, you know, lesson learned on an entrepreneurial perspective is like, don't tell people until it's done, right? Until it's inked, you know, my, my, shame on me for that one. But there was a cultural issue because we have seven brewers that were all expecting to be able to not have to do that part of the job, which is, I mean, it's tough. I mean, it is very laborious. You're going to cut your na- cut your hands and on the, on the tanks and stuff. And then there's the other portion of it where you got to load the coffee into the tanks. That's not automated either. So we're literally walking up stairs and dumping 40 gallon pails of coffee into these brew tanks. So yeah, you're a hundred percent spot on where culturally everyone was expecting to be and have this really beautiful, shiny object, take their friends to come view it. And now it's just, more of the same and a lot more of it. Yeah, and that's that's a tough thing is when you, you when you're excited about something you want to share. Like you want to share like the, oh, we're working on this and mm-hmm. you're excited about it, especially like that founder mentality is like the second you learn about something you just want to share it and be like, "Oh, we're working on this, we're working on that." I was just telling you something before off mic that like I'm not going to share publicly until the, until it it is happening. Like yep. until the doors are open on this new thing we're working on, I don't even want to talk about it, but that's hard. As you could probably tell, I wanted to share it with you right away, but I go, I don't want to share it with too many people because of that risk. And that's that gets really difficult as a founder is you have to kind of internalize a lot of not only successes, but also like negative things like the financial. So you have these like financial woes, and this is true of any growing business is people see you growing. They see you locked on this funding and they're like, wow, you are killing it. You must just be on cloud nine. Everything must just mm-hmm. be awesome. And you're like... Well, that is the story that people are reading in the paper today is as much as I will go into it. And it's, uh, you know, Tim Niver, who's I don't know if you've met him before. He uh, he owns Moochies over in St. Paul and a couple other places. He just did a podcast episode about like, how do you respond in this industry when someone goes, how's it going? You go, how honest do I get? Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, versus just being like, it's good, you know, because <laughs> we kind of signed up for this getting into the food and beverage industries. You may not know quite to the scope of the stress of the constant indecision, the constant anxiety of not knowing the next step. So when something like this brewery comes along and you've got the CAD design made out and you're looking at that design on your computer and you're going, this is going to change. My employees are going to be happy. We're going to be more efficient. And then this thing comes along where you're like, all right, the space next door is now available. Hooray, this solves all of our current problems in terms of storage. But now I have to go back and tell everybody that this is what's happening. Now, something I'm very curious about. So uh, this $7.1 million in funding comes out and it's a combination of like debt through loans, but also with VC companies. How do you begin these discussions as you're growing? But as you were just saying that, like, as you're growing, costs are changing, you're working with new retailers, that's hard to be profitable in some of these spaces. Amazon, as I know, is just like adding on fees left and right to where you go, how are we going to make money? And then they also do this thing where they comb the internet to price match and see if you have any lower prices available on the internet. So for example, we're $14.99 at Target. 
If you go to Target.com, a bag of Folly Coffee is $14.99. That's not all the fees of getting it delivered to your home. Amazon doesn't care about that. You have to be $14.99 all in on Amazon, all that shipping and fees and stuff not included. As you're going through all these things and you're looking for investors, how do these conversations begin when things are very uncertain and absolutely a crazy time where predictability hasn't really existed for a couple of years? Yeah, so I've first kind of taken take the story back because I think it's important to know how I've gone through this. This is our fourth round of funding. And I only say that because I've screwed up a lot in the past and I've kind of built a internal model of how I do it. So the, the thing about fundraising is it's all about FOMO, fear of missing out, and it's a momentum game. So when I'm going into this, we actually closed on the funding, and I strategically didn't announce it until February intentionally, but we closed on the funding at the end of November. And so we do cold coffee. So I know that my sales are going to increase from April through um, August, which means I don't publish my financials until September. So what I do is I make sure that I, I, I literally write up a calendar. So it starts as week by week, you know, in Excel going horizontally. And I say, okay, here's what I'm going to kick off my fundraising, which means my, you know, I'm starting building my presentation deck. And then I'm building my list of investors, which for anyone that is looking to raise money, there's a ton of, the way that I've always done it is there's like trade publications. So for me, I'm in the beverage industry slash food, food and beverage. So I subscribe to Project Nosh and BevNet. And I read it every single day. And when someone makes a funding announcement, I read who the investors were mm. and I add them to my list. So I've been building this list for literally seven years. And so I kind of, I, I look at, I, I build my presentation, which is just like, you know, my, my dream. Here's what I think we're going to do. And then I make sure to always have lower expectations than I think we're going to be able to do. I made that mistake early in the early days where I would like we're gonna we're gonna be doing a hundred million dollars next year i've been saying i'm gonna do that for like 12 years right? <laughs> <laughs> and and so now i i paint very conservative objection or forecast by month and i only show like very specific metrics because and this is very similar in sale sales into retail is i never want anyone to say no from the materials mm. So the thing about a fundraising deck is it is literally a sales material to get a meeting. I, I, we have an investor in Chicago, and they are the largest investor in the Midwest by number of deals, not deal size or anything. And they brought in someone that was on the West Coast. They were like the Microsoft venture capital arm. And there was this really smart um, entrepreneur from Minnesota or Chicago, somewhere in the Midwest. And he goes, how are we supposed to compete with these founders on the West Coast that just flat out lie in their sales presentations about their customers, about how much money they're raising. And the investor says, it's a sales presentation, dude, get the meeting. And so the way that I like to think of these is when I'm creating a presentation, I just want to make sure that the information that I put in there is not going to make someone say no. I only want to show charts that are up and to the right. I only want to talk about big opportunities. Never ever say anything that could be viewed negatively or I know before they even get to talk to you because once they talk to you they're going to fall in love with you because you're an optimistic entrepreneur <laughs> so I basically build my deck I build my investor list and then I and then I create a timeline and I stick to it so not only do I say okay 
these weeks I'm doing my first meeting. And then I'm going to build what I call it. It's like a data room and an investor packet, which has the next level of information. It's really not even that much. It's just like I, I put my deck again into a folder and then I have my historical financials. I have my projections, which I'm planning on beating. That's the important thing. I do month by month forecast. And then I just want to make sure that I'm going to beat it. So every time I can email them, I'm like, oh, hey, we closed our financials, added them to the data room, and they can compare them against my forecast. And they're like, dang, he beat it. Holy crap. And so I just provide that information. If I have sales data or I have Amazon data, I'll put that in there. Some basic stuff like, you know, your articles of incorporation, your trademark, mm-hmm. so that they know, like, oh, this is a real company that's actually tracking stuff. And then over time, what I'll do is then I want to make sure that I'm like adding external PR as well. And so I'll have like every two to four days as I'm leading up to a term sheet is, is the, is kind of you, there's kind of like three phases. There's the initial diligence where they're just like getting to know you, seeing the opportunity. Then they're looking at the data room, which is a a version one, which is not very detailed. And then I ask for a a term sheet on a date because typically in these calls, they'll say, what's, what's your timeline. And I've found it most successful to pick a very specific timeline and charge towards it. So for me, basically every year, I've said I want term sheets by September 1st and I want to close by Thanksgiving. And so that way I know that like, okay, I'm giving them time and I kick off my fundraise in about May. So I, whatever that month, it's about a six month cycle. And that way, whenever I'm meeting with people, I can keep driving towards that September deadline. So then as I'm going through my first few weeks, um, it's loose communication. I'll do a LinkedIn post about this. I'll try and get on a podcast and then August is the month where it's detailed and they're a meeting with partners or the, um, the decision makers at the investment funds. And then I have a daily calendar. So I say, this is the piece of information I'm going to drop into the data room today. And then I'm going to email everyone. Then I'm going to do a LinkedIn post talking about how we landed a retailer. And then I knew this year we're getting in the Inc. 5000. So I planned that for the middle of my month when I was going to be promoting myself. And it's essentially like, the, the term's going to sound bad, but it's a pump and dump. You want to like pump up your value and make things so exciting. And then I'll BCC everyone on the same email. So they know that there's other people that are in the, in the, the, uh, the deals for that FOMO. And then I'll try and drive to a term sheet by that September 1st deadline. And then there's typically a negotiation or two over the next, you know, the next week or two until you sign a term sheet and then you drive towards the close and for, for me is in that November period. So I really have a process that I try and use and, and I, I try and leverage. I have some friends that are investment bankers that they sell companies and I'll ask them like, hey, do you have like a letter that I can use to formalize this or can you review this data room? How does this look? What should I add? What should I remove? Because they're used to seeing all of these things over and over again. And the people now that we're talking to, the early stages, it was, you know, angel investors, friends and families. Mm -hmm. And then it became what's called the seed fund. And then it became like a bridge seed fund. And now we're talking with like Series A growth equity investors. And it's each time you do it, there's different expectations. But the general psychology is the same. If other people are excited about it, it's going to get them excited too. And if you stick to a deadline, it's like the train's leaving the station, whether you're on it or not, but like the train is leaving, you're, you might buy a ticket. 
And that's kind of <laughs> like the, the, the thought process. And so I've found that sticking to a deadline of this is when we're expecting term sheets and we're not going to accept any after that. And we will be closing on this date because then it's like we're, we're using this money to execute this plan. And if we don't have the money by this timeline, we can't execute the plan. Therefore, the forecast that I showed you are wrong. So that's kind of the process. And it seems like everything is like this constant balance of pros and cons. Like even when you're putting together the sales deck is you go, if I make everything too rosy, then when we do get down to the details, they're going to be like, like you said, on the West coast, you go, these decks are just lies. It makes it seem like this is going to be the next big, you know, biggest food beverage company in the world. And then you open up the books and you're like, this is not at all the history of it, but also you got them to open it. So kind of mission accomplished, but if it's too far apart from what's in the sales deck to the actual numbers, then they're probably going to be out because they go, this is not what, what we wanted to open in the first place. So you, you want to have that close enough that they are looking at the numbers going, okay, I could see where they're coming from on this deck while also not having anything negative. And then there seems to be this kind of like marketing and psych- like psychological cycle. Because I imagine totally. too, as you're raising these funds and as you're able to secure funds, and I imagine this has a lot to do with the February timing of uh, this year of announcing, hey, this is when we're going to announce even though it's closed in November, I'm going to wait until February because I'm going to take a guess here. We know that cold brew sales start to go up nicely April and then May you really start to hit your straight uh, stride in those middle months. So if I'm talking to retailers about their summer set, if I'm talking to retailers about their summer set, I want to be talking to them February, March, have that finalized by March, be in store by April, May, whenever they kind of have their next set upcoming. So then you have this weird thing where you're like, these retailers aren't interested until they see these things like funding so that Mm -hmm. they know you can keep up with what they're doing. And then you go, well, it's the same product. We would have already been able to get into this retailer and keep up without this funding. But now that we have this funding, the retailer wants it. And it's like this constant cycle. So to hear you go through that much detail makes a lot of sense. Because I think a lot of people, myself included, might think that you go, oh, it's just numbers. You just are talking to an investor. Here's the revenue we do. Here's this. But there's a certain level of excitement you need to generate and then capture on. And that's kind of the psychological side of investment, that sometimes the numbers might not show you what's going to be. And companies that have only been around for five years, I can speak to this. If you open up the books of a company that's been around for five years, it's probably not going to be that exciting when you start looking at like profitability. Because there's, what I've learned is there's this constant balance between profitability and growth. That if you're in aggressive growth mode, you're probably not very profitable whether it's investing in capital to be able to keep up with the band, to be able to produce more, to be able to market more, or it's on the flip side, if you go really conservative and be like, we just want to be really profitable, you're probably lowering the ceiling for what you'll be able to do. Because if someone does come knocking on your door, wanting an additional 1,200 stores, and you've done nothing but try to be profitable for five years, you probably won't be able to take on that business. And so to hear the cycle of generating excitement and all the intangible things, because that's what like PR and media and all these articles coming out about your business that's kind of what that is is just like intangible excitement behind a brand or a business and i imagine intangible factors when raising investment are probably way way more valuable in a weird way because of that human element than just here's my projections for the next two years when you can bolster that with here's people really excited about what we're doing investors look at that and go 
boy, there's a ton of excitement behind this. Look at the funding they just secured. Look, now they're talking about Target expansion, Kroger expansion, Publix. These are national, like, known brands. It's like when we, so we launched in Target last year in August. And I'll just be completely transparent on it here. It's 43 stores. It's a good number of stores in the Twin City, for Folly especially. I, lo- I love talking to you. I love talking to other people that are like national retailers. And, I, and they're like, yeah, we just locked down another thousand stores. I'm like, that's an inconceivable number to me. But for us, 43 stores, it about doubles our store count. And retail for us, it's slightly profitable, not very profitable. But that was one of the first times in our business that people go, holy shit, you're in Target? You guys are blowing up. Like, mm-hmm. And then I go, that retail for us is actually not even the best part of our business. But that's one of the first moments I realized that the emotional thought of a business is sometimes more important for how people perceive how you're doing than the actual numbers. Because if you dig into our books, Target is an awesome retailer. We're selling a lot of coffee in there. But when you compare it to like cafes and restaurants, you go a couple great cafes are going to sell as much coffee mm-hmm. as all 43 stores. Mm-hmm. But people looking at it going, whoa. This national brand, we're from Minnesota, so Target has like this extra level of importance placed on it. People go, oh, so this thing you're doing is really real. I'm like, well, four years in, I should hope that you thought that before. But that emotional element of building a brand that is the intangible can be really important into how people view your business. Now, when you're talking about VC, how someone feel uh, venture capital and investors, how they feel about your business is money. And so to be able to generate excitement is going to increase the amount of funding and then increase the number of things you're doing. It's this never ending kind of like chicken or the egg situation. Like if we had these funds, if we could do this, Mm -hmm. but we need to convince them we can do this to get these funds. And then if we don't get the funds, these retailers aren't interested. And then the VC would be like, I told you, you weren't going to do that. And you go, yeah, because we didn't get the funds. And then if you have the funds, the retailer goes, now we're interested because we saw this publication come Mm -hmm. out about this funding. Wow, this business must be blown up. Now we want to bring these into these additional thousands of stores. And it's this like constant thing that to hear you break it down was fascinating. Well, it's so interesting. The way that the model works is, you know, they invest and they want you to grow as fast as you can. When as and you are so spot on where the faster you grow, the more money you lose. And they know that. And so the strategy for them is basically give you a bunch of money and give you just enough rope to hang yourself. <laughs> and so they give you just enough money to to do some hyper growth, but not enough to sustain. So then you have to go back to sustain the growth that they demand, and then you have to go get more money from them. And then the terms might change. They might not be better than the last ones they might be worse and so all of a sudden that business that you own that you started you might have a lot less of it you might have no control you might not even be able to legally operate it because they can just remove you from your seat so it really is a the fundraising investment landscape can be very scary it can be very fun if done properly it can be an incredible thing like we skipped two rounds of funding because frankly we could not get the funding no no joke we used amazon loans and I think they were charging us 18% interest. Hmm. Totally insane. We had to pay it back in 12 months. And the crazy thing is they had all of our inventory so they could just put us out of business immediately. And so we skipped a few rounds, which without that, I mean, we would be totally screwed. My co-founder and I would have basically no equity, but we were willing to sign personal guarantees, get these super high interest loans. So that that next round that we just did in, in the end of last year announced in February, we're still in control of the company. 
But had we not have done that, there's no chance we would have. And that's that's their model. I mean, that's how they do it. There's all the famous tech stories of people that get you know, ousted from management of their own company that they started because of those growth expectations. And when you're thinking about this balance between growth and profitability, when you take on investment from like a, a, a VC, or it could even be a private investment uh, with high demands of kind of return mm-hmm. on this business or revenue expectations, when you're looking at growth versus profitability, is there ever a point where you say like, hey, if we just stayed steady at this growth point, we'd be able to increase our profitability by X, Y, and Z, but then we wouldn't hit our revenue expectations that we laid out to these investors. Do you feel pressure from investors or VCs about like, we need to hit these revenue numbers or are they more focusing on profitability or is it a balance of the two? Because it seems to me, a lot of it's just about what's your top line revenue. And sometimes it feels crazy to me that I think we've even chatted about this before. Mm -hmm. It's like, would you rather have a $100 million company doing $1 million in profit a year or would you rather have a $2 million company doing $1 million in profit a year? And it seems to me in the VC landscape, the answer is always like $100 million. Mm-hmm. No questions asked. We That's what we want. And you're like, but in theory, both of these companies are doing the same amount of profit. So mm-hmm. what discussions are being had about what is the priority? Is it the revenue growth? Is it store distribution? What are the things that are being looked at when you're talking to investors after they've invested in your company? Yeah, so they want everything, right? Which is totally unrealistic. And they know that, but they still want it, right? They want the company that's doubling revenue every year that's profitable. That's pretty much unlikely unless you're in this wild category that I don't know exists. Yeah. Unless you're selling like uh, cocaine or some other powder on the internet. Right? <laughs> um, so it's actually very cyclical. So the last, we'll say 10 years, it has always been grow, 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 grow at all costs. We do not care about profitability because the strategic, which is you're either going to IPO, like you know, in our world, Beyond Meat or Black Rifle Coffee, mm-hmm. They're going to IPO to get your investors a return where the profitability doesn't matter as much, or you're going to sell to a strategic, right? Like a, a big coffee brand in our, in our situation. And so in, in those worlds, the profitability doesn't matter because when they buy you, they basically get rid of your whole team and they put you into their own cost structure, which is typically very profitable. But right now with the level of inflation and the way that the market has collapsed, strategics aren't buying and investors aren't really investing. And so if you are currently, if you have investors currently, they're basically telling you to fire all of your employees and they, they call it default alive. So if nothing changes, your company can exist. Even if revenue doesn't grow, you can exist profitably or your default dead, which means that even if you get rid of all of your costs, if revenue doesn't increase, the company fails. So right now, they're basically all they care about is profitability. And I was reading a post on LinkedIn today from a, a, a direct consumer agency, and he's like, seven out of our 10 clients have failed in the last six months. And all they do is DTC, food and bev. And so right now, everyone is laser focused on profitability, cutting costs, pass on price increases, because consumers are trading down, right? So they went from... An, at least in our world, because we're in the opening price point of premium, but we're still opening price point, right? We're not actually premium. So we're our our business model has been getting people that buy the cheapest shit to buy ours because it's a very small step up, which is right now a dangerous place to be mm. because those people that are buying Stoke and Starbucks, they're buying private label. 
So they're actually trading down to the cheapest thing where the people with the money that weren't affected by the inflation, they're, they're going up because they made more money. And so we're in a, actually a very dangerous spot from a pricing strategy. And so everyone is just focused on margins, 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 mm. margins. And of course, they want you to keep growing. They want you to be profitable. But right now, as you know, I'm talking with investors full time, it's another fundraising tip is always talk to investors, even when you're not raising money, especially when you're not raising money, because then you have more leverage. Mm. Um, but I'm talking to them right now. And that's all that they're looking for is they just want to make sure that you are profitable right now and that there's basically no one that is. So the the landscape is such that no one's even really investing into the food and beverage space because all emerging brands were already had bad margins. And now with private label coming on board, being more important to the consumer, everyone's getting screwed. Yeah. And that's, it's easy to look at the big costs and coffee. The obvious one is, you know, the, 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 the the C market, so being the commodity-grade coffee, kind of dictates the overall pricing of coffee, having doubled in the past year, mm -hmm. driving every coffee company's overall cost. Even coffee like we're purchasing at Folly being, it used to be th three to four, sometimes five times the price of the, like C-grade coffee. Now it's two to three times the price of uh, C-grade coffee. But, so we have... S we have some cushion in between that, but it kind of dictates the overall pricing. And again, now I'm speaking to like Jeff's responsibility at Folly. He gives me the top line. Basically the way we operate is like coffee is his responsibility. And then I just need like the details I need mm -hmm. to know. So for me, it's like, Jeff, what price do you need to be to get great coffees? And then are we going to be okay with that? We were talking beforehand that like we are somewhat fortunate during this time that we've been growing while the prices are going up. Usually what happens when you grow is you're able to purchase larger volumes of things. You're able to get costs down as you grow. Ours have remained stable because as costs go up, but not just coffee, but corrugated boxes. So the boxes we're sending the coffee to the grocery stores and the boxes, I'm sure it's like with you sending to Amazon, all these small costs all add up, whether it's labor, corrugated, our custom boxes we're doing have gone up. Things as simple as we used to throw a sticker in our online shipments and be like, here's a folly sticker for you at home. <laughs> That's doubled. Yep. <laughs> so I'm like, is it worth us putting a sticker in here for the customer? If it means that we actually have, we used to not have to charge more to just, Hey, this is a 25 cent sticker. Now it's like that sticker is a dollar. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I guess we can't do that anymore. That kind of sucks. All these small costs add up. And then in a B to C business or a, I mean, B2B. So like if we're selling a cafe restaurant, you're talking to business owners that are dealing with these same costs. Yeah. And so they're coming back to you being like, hey, we need our coffee prices to be lower because all of our costs are up. And we're like, well, actually, I need to talk to you because we have to raise <laughs> our prices. And then with B2C, you've got, especially on subscription models, if you've got a subscription model, online uh, B2C business, business to consumer or D2C, direct to consumer, uh, same difference, phrased differently, if you have this direct-to-consumer model and you have a subscription and they've purchased a recurring subscription on a pricing model, you've got this discussion to have of, do we increase the price of our existing subscribers? And then by doing that, how many of them decide, oh, I, I'm not going to do this anymore, even if it's just 50 cents? <laughs> this might be a hot take, but in my opinion, this myself included on things I'm subscribed to, half the time I forget I'm, I'm subscribed to them. They show up and I go, oh, great. I like this product. I'm glad it showed up. Maybe I wouldn't have gone out and purchased it if I was just doing it a one-time thing. But most people, it's a convenience thing. So the second you introduce like, hey, price increase, you go, 
oh, you know what? I haven't actually looked at this subscription for a while. Should I continue this? Nope. And then you go, okay, so if I increase by 50 cents, if I lose 50 customers, it doesn't matter that extra 50. It's like this constant balance of all these increased costs as you're looking at it during a time where now people are saying we need more margin because of the landscape of the industry. Now the value of a company is margin. So you're looking at margin and profitability during times when it's the most difficult to have margin and profitability. Then when it's the easiest potential time to have margin and profitability, they're saying drive revenue and growth. And so it's like, no matter what the time is, it seems that investors are always looking for like the opposite of what's probably the most convenient or not easy is not the right word, but like less challenging or the landscape creates the possibility of like, Hey, if we just focus on profitability during this time, that would be possible. Uh, and then I was telling you before that like this year, the theme for Folly is like, let's get our books back. Let's do a full year of not prioritizing growth. Then of course, when we choose to make this decision, every, the price of absolutely everything goes up. It's wild. Well, the craziest part, and this is insulated to basically us, but inflation's up, right? I think whatever it is, 10% back in napkin. Um, but the thing about coffee is it's totally unrelated to inflation. So we're having inflationary pressures on day-to-day operations, as you said, labor, corrugate, freight. But then coffee is up unrelated. There was a frost, right? And so all of a sudden there's less supply. So the cost cost of just the commodity product, which, as you said, drives all prices, is up significantly. Literally nothing to do with the rest of the things. Coffee industry would be having this discussion right now if the economy was perfect right now just because of what's happening in the coffee industry. And it's like, I, I was thinking about just the last few years and you're like, it, it, it has gotten to the point for me that it's like, okay, if I can make it through this, like, and this is where I, I, I've been saying it for a couple of years ago, well, it can't get crazier than this. And then it does. Mm-hmm. It's like, <laughs> you know, I, I was like to joke is like you and I went down the double black diamonds of startups. Like it's coffee, which is a commodity. And I joke that it's free at holiday gas station on Tuesdays, right? <laughs> We're both dealing with cold chain logistics, which is impossible. It's perishable good. There's the ultimate level of competition. I mean, it doesn't get harder than what we've done. And I say that to myself because I got to pull myself up some days. I'm like, if I can get through this, I can literally get through anything. <laughs> Well, I was talking to a buddy of mine who's, who's had his own successes in different categories, and he, he did lay out a very similar sentiment, was, which was essentially like, when you're thinking about like your life and your career, like for me, coffee is just an obsession. I started it because I love it, and I go, it'd be really cool if I could be in this world. I, th- I think you could back that up, mm-hmm, and that's like, for sure. I, could, I could be selling something else and be making way more money, and that's I just decided sure. that I go, that's just not what I want to do. I'm obsessed yeah. with this industry. I want to be in it. But from a business standpoint, if you're thinking about your career, let's say this does fail or let's say it succeeds. If you can show any, he he was basically saying, if you can show any level of success in this category, you as a salesperson, as a business person, become more attractive when you're talking about other industries that might be less competitive or have fewer competitors. Or like you said, yeah, you can't go to a gas station and get a free version of it on Tuesday. But that's kind of where you have to go the intangibles of coffee are what are most important when you have a, a premium or like like you said entry premium is you have to be able to put that down on the table mm-hmm. and say taste this next to what you're drinking and tell me it's not better <laughs> tell me this doesn't taste great yeah. but guess who doesn't care about that usually investors yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, no they want the, they want the margins they want the price they want the growth <laughs> but the good thing is that we're at the same time right we're, it's tough category but man it's exploding 
And you keep hearing like if you if you drink coffee, you're less likely to die. I mean, those are facts. Like those are facts. There's not many things that you go if you can make a great tasting product. And by the way, this is also great for you. And that that is one of the nice things that over the past mm-hmm. few years, it does seem like the public commentary on coffee is shifting. When you're talking about longevity, especially when you're talking about black coffee which is what you do. You yep. do black coffee ready to drink. We do coffee beans and then Filtero, we do black cold brew. It's all we sell. So when you're talking about like healthier habits, there's not many things like that. So there are a lot of things to get excited about. The category continues to grow in the high end, even with everything going on, that people are looking for better options. Yep. And I just still truly believe that it's like once you have great coffee, it's really hard to go back. That's why there's free coffee at Holiday down the street. I'm never going to get it. No. Because it's impossible. I would rather go to a great cafe and get a great cup of coffee or go home and take the time to make one because the quality difference is so much higher. But it's that funny thing that's like, I go to them less and less, I find. But like back when I was going to like every business thing I could find and you're you're talking Mm -hmm. to people about your business, the first thing they always ask is, well, what makes yours different? Yeah. And you're like, well, like, like it tastes really good. And they're like, this guy's screwed. <laughs> if you tell somebody we, we just make a really high quality, great tasting product, they're like, oh, this guy's so screwed. Well, what's your, what's your, what's your tech side to it? Do you have any like tech, mm-hmm. technological differentiation? Mm-hmm. And that's the big thing. What's your point of differentiation? And you go, there's marketing, there's branding, there's strategy that, yes, we do things differently that I would be willing to back up. But at the end of the day, the product itself It's a tough industry to be in and try to convince someone that you've got something that's going to work if what they're looking for and their first question is, oh, what makes you different? Well, that's what makes the food and beverage industry so difficult. But if you were to talk to any consumer of any product category, you know, it can be a pizza roll, it can be, you know, whatever, a sausage, but like you buy the things that taste the best, right? Like a (laughs) hundred, not a hundred percent of the time, but like 95% of the time, if the thing tastes like shit, even if it's the cheapest, you're not going to buy it again. But to your point, like you talk to an investor, oh my gosh, and they're like, what makes your product different? It's the best. Like it, it is literally the best one. Well, that doesn't work. Like yeah. I can't I can't pitch that up to Wall Street yeah. in five years. It's like, no, it's literally just the best product. And that, that's where it's funny that the, at the consumer level, so like me being just an extreme coffee nerd is very different than the conversations that happen from the business aspect of things. And that's an example of an intangible that's kind of hard to bring to the table if you're talking to potential investors or even just retailers. Mm -hmm. If you're coming to the table with a retailer, they're going to be way more interested into sales as opposed to, let's taste our coffee versus the ones you currently sell. They go, I'm no coffee expert, so I wouldn't be able to do that. I would argue it's better that you're not a coffee expert. Pick one of these out blind. What's your favorite? Like, that is still less effective on a big scale. Now, on a, like a local store-to-store, that works really nicely. It's yep. so like when Folly's starting out, bringing brood samples, being able to talk to the buyer of that co-op, talk to the buyer of that locally-owned independent store, they highly value those things. But it seems like the higher you go up in the hierarchy of like large chains, uh, like out-of-state, regional, national chains... There's too much pressure for a buyer to say, I brought this in because it tastes really good. They almost need to create reasoning that if it succeeds, great. But if it almost more importantly for a lot of these buyers is if it doesn't succeed, I need to protect myself and know that there's all these things built in to the partnership that protects us from it, which makes it very interesting that especially in food and beverage, that's like 
the taste is what's most important to the consumers and it falls way down the list the bigger a retailer you seem to go yeah i mean great example is Publix. so during when everyone was out of stock they went to our um, contact us form 1300 stores they basically own southeast florida as their major market and we had a call with them and they're like can you make this stuff can you deliver truckload of product to florida you're in minnesota can you deliver a truckload of product to florida when we place an order we're like yeah of course right of course we can do that and they they, they committed to carrying the product before they even receive samples that, that's exactly they're like, what i was gonna say they're like look at our otif score which stands for on time in full we're like yeah we always deliver what is ordered and we're we've never this was like more than doubled our store count at the time this was like the biggest scariest thing ever and we're like, oh, but of course, entrepreneur. Oh, yeah, no, we, yeah, yeah, no, we do that all the time. That's no problem. That's no problem. But I mean, to your point, like they they agreed to carry the product before they hadn't even tasted it. 1,300 stores. We were not in that many stores. <laughs> and because it's insane. Being on the shelf quickly shifted to their number one thing. Yep. This reminds me of uh, when I was still at Boston Beer. This is when cider was exploding as a category. So this is like 2000. I, I came on board in 2013, and I think cider really started to explode that year. Had a bunch of momentum going into it. Angry Orchard was one of our brands. Angry Orchard started to become quickly the category leader. This category is absolutely exploding. Now, this is what I heard from people that had been in the industry a long time. I'm sure Budweiser would never go on the paper saying this is what they're doing, but people would create what are called category busters. When they see a category start to explode like cider, Budweiser goes, this is bad for us. Beer is our biggest selling product. We need to continue the success of beer. We're losing a lot of drinkers to cider, even just like FMB, so flavored malt beverages. We're losing our FMB drinkers to ciders. We don't own the best selling cider. We need to kill this category. Allegedly, this is what happened. And they released Johnny Appleseed. I don't know if you ever tasted Johnny Appleseed. This was one of the most vile, bad-tasting liquids I've ever had in my life. It was like an instant cavity. It, the, just the flavor itself wasn't even good. If you're, t I'm not a big sweet drink guy, but like I understand people that like it. And I tasted this. I go, this isn't even going to be good for someone that likes sweet things. It just tastes bad. Mm -hmm. And I was so confused by it. And I was talking to someone that had been in the industry for years and they go, again, no one would go on a paper and say, this is our strategy, but they go, they're the biggest beer company in the U.S. We're going to launch a product that intentionally tastes bad and hope we're early enough that it's the first cider a lot of people have ever tasted. Wow. We're going to pump it into every store, make sure that this is the one that's got the end caps. This is the one that's in every cooler. It's got better shelf placement than Angry Orchard. We're hoping not enough people have tried Angry Orchard yet because we want to kill this category. So someone drinks Johnny Appleseed goes, oh, I guess I don't like ciders and never buys a cider again. Now, I think they were too late to the game. Enough people had tried ciders that they go, this is Johnny Appleseed is a bad cider. Yeah, yeah. But like that's an example of a company knowing that taste is important wow. and being like, let's release a bad one intentionally to try to kill this category. I don't know of anything like that in coffee. Uh, a lot of the coffees on the shelf, I would go... If I tasted this, I would think this is what they're doing, but mm -hmm. nope, this is actually a great selling coffee. So coffee is one of the weird ones where like the standard four years has been some of the worst coffee that you can possibly find. So it's nowhere to go but up. Yeah, well, and I was just reading a research report that astounding fact, and I've been quoting something similar without true data, but I got actual data from Mintel. It's like the largest research firm for all food and beverage and categories. 
82% of consumers add cream or sweeteners or something into their coffee. 82%, more than four out of five, are mixing their coffee with something, which is just insane, right? Because we love black, like I only drink black coffee, only. And I love the flavor of coffee and it's like a ritual, right? It's emotional for me. But four to five people aren't even tasting the coffee. They're just adding stuff into it. So they're tasting the sweeteners, the creams, the whatever is the thing that they add, and really not even the coffee, which is just an astounding fact of, of our category that no one else has to deal with. That's wild. And I have always argued people go, oh, you probably hate it that I put cream and sugar in my coffee. No, but also coffee is the main ingredient still in that. If the coffee's bad, it's going to taste worse. Now it's going to be masked. A lot of those bad flavors are going to be, but... I've always made the argument that, like, still, if you're using great coffee, eventually I think you'll start to use less and less when you realize that the coffee is supporting the natural sweetness. Mm-hmm. The flavor is actually nice on its own. And then the the, the, the one of the products, and I, I'll get you out of here in a little bit since we're coming up on an hour here, but the I've tried to think of coffee products that I go, is there anything out there that's proved that better coffee does win even if it's got less funding less and there's a product that came out a a few years ago at this point uh Folgers 1850 Mm -hmm. so this is a classic big brand strategy as they go we're Folgers we're in every retailer in America we have the most insane distribution network and the resources to be able to launch products probably on par with only a few other coffee uh, producers in this country. Like Starbucks is another one that if they release a product, they can get in every store, they can put incentives behind it. They can get it into the sets at every retailer across the country. And so Folgers goes, okay, high end coffee is growing at an astounding rate versus and our, our heritage brand, the can of Folgers, which is now a plastic tub of Folgers is dying out slowly. And steadily. And it's like we're just losing shares to all these other new coffees coming out. We're going to release our own high-end coffee, 1850. And it just sat on the shelf. And that leads me to believe that, like, I don't, first of all, I don't know how many people even picked up that bag of coffee. Because if you're a high-end drinker, I don't think you're going, oh, Folgers came out with this new drop. Let me try the 1850, see what they're doing. I think most people didn't buy it in the first place. But if it was a fantastic coffee, it would pick up momentum in some way. A lot of specialty drinkers would go, actually, this is pretty dang good. You didn't hear that. You're looking at the tags at certain retailers where you can see the pull through, and I'm seeing nothing but zeros. And I go, okay, this is a little bit of anecdotal evidence to me Mm -hmm. that it's like good coffee does win out when you're in this category. But like you said, that's just a small piece of the puzzle when you're talking about all the factors that go in, especially on like the retail level. Even just talking cafes and restaurants, whether it's equipment, whether it's who are your other customers, your price point, there's all these different variables that go in. And that's where, like, if your customer's number one priority is price point, it's going to be a tough life for you. Because larger uh, suppliers are always going to be able to win that battle. Even like you mentioned, so many large suppliers held out on increasing pricing for an impossible length of time. Mm -hmm. And they're going because we know if everybody goes high first... We can maybe pick up some new customers for a six-month period and then jump up in price with everybody else. Yep. <laughs> and I'll, I'll finish it by saying that it's like every time we meet, you're like one of my go-to people. If I go, oh, God, I'm stressed. There's a lot, a lot of crazy shit going on uh-huh. in my world, and like it's getting so hard to navigate that. Like we could have a two-minute conversation at the gym, and I leave our conversations and go, things aren't. 
Things aren't too stressful, actually. <laughs> actually, things are kind of easy about what I'm talking about, the, the things I'm having to deal with and the scope of having to deal with it. Well, that's good. I'm glad I can <laughs> make people feel better with my misery. How do you feel about things going forward as you're kind of going through this new round, as, as you're looking at the landscape? I'm sure it's you don't want out-of-stocks to be the reason you pick up a bunch of new retailers, but you're going to capitalize on any opportunity that you're given. How do you feel about how things are looking moving forward and like where you're going as a business and the things you're able to do? Yeah, I mean, I think short-term, it's going to be really tough purely because of cost pressures. If we were to remove costs from the equation, literally as optimistic as you could be, I think cold coffee is predicted to be uh, $8.3 billion category by 2026, and it was a billion dollars three years ago. So the tailwinds are massive, which is really exciting. And I think consumers, the way that cold coffee is today is it's, you know, still relatively basic and no one really, there's no nuance to the product. It was still called black coffee three years ago, right? (laughs) It's now just, they're calling it by the roast profile. Um, So I think over the next five to 10 years, it's going to be just like craft beer was, it's going to be just like craft coffee was, and it's just 10 years behind. And hopefully we can be on the forefront of that. So I'd say overall, I'm extremely optimistic. I think we'll be able to get our costs under control, even if you know, it's when the C market retreats to some degree or everyone passes on price and we can do the same. Um, so I think overall, really optimistic outside of the, the short term cost pressures. Really optimistic outside of the things I absolutely cannot control. Yeah, yeah. And that, unfortunately, that's kind of how you have to be. It would be yeah. it'd be worse if it was the opposite. If you're like, I feel great True. about costs, but all the things I can control with my brand and my business, yeah. I'm very yeah. worried about. Yeah. But I, it's been really cool to see what you're doing. And based on the conversation we've had and the, the way you think about your year and your month and your day, I'm sure you've got a good plan going into next year as we're yep. wrapping up our summer months now. And you're probably going to begin those next discussions about what is our next summer and what are the growth factors. Yep. You got it. Cool. Thanks for coming in. And I will end it like I do every other episode and say, have a nice day.